You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 94 of Ask Concussion Doc. I'm doing things a little bit differently today. Uh, usually I just kind of go off the cuff and I record a video straight on. Um, today I'm actually doing a presentation. So I have a PowerPoint presentation. So for those people that are watching later on YouTube, you get the benefit of having this PowerPoint presentation. For those watching live, uh, on Instagram, you will obviously just get to hear the audio portion of it, but you can look at the presentation afterwards. This presentation is a presentation that I did for the Concussion Fix group. So for those that don't know, the Concussion Fix is a program for patients with persistent concussion symptoms. It's an online group program designed to educate, inform, and help to guide patients down the right path so that they can have a successful recovery. And every week we do a live group session where we pick a topic. If we're starting to get a lot of questions on a certain topic, uh, we will put together a presentation and we'll bring that presentation to the group and we'll do a live session on Zoom. And then everyone gets the benefit of that and we take the video and we, we upload it to the site so that new members can get the access to those types of presentations. So one presentation that we did was because we were getting a lot of questions on whether or not somebody with PCS or post-concussion syndrome is has increased susceptibility or is increasingly vulnerable to additional uh, trauma. So the question I have over here is, does this include post-concussion syndrome? The answer is yes. That's exactly what it's for. The concussion fix program is for PCS. So this entire presentation is for patients with persistent concussion symptoms. Okay. So the presentation is about the increased susceptibility. If I have a concussion and I'm still recovering and it's been months and months and months, am I more susceptible to getting another concussion? So patients will often say, oh, I bumped my head on a shelf and all of a sudden all my symptoms came rushing back. Or, you know, if I go over bumps in a car, I'm really afraid because I can feel my brain bouncing around inside my skull. And so uh, on my presentation slide here, I have a plane because another complaint we get frequently is people afraid of flying due to turbulence. Uh, I have a car going over a massive jump uh, because people are afraid of bouncing around in a car. A lot of people hit their head on countertops, bending over to pick things up and so on. Or open cupboard doors seems to be the nemesis of many a concussion patient as well. So what we're going to talk about today in this particular session is why do I seem to keep getting another concussion every time I bonk my head? Okay. And am I more susceptible to getting concussions now that I've had one or that I still have persistent symptoms? So I'm going to break this down in a bit of a pathway and we're going to try and, and talk about it from a perspective of how much force does it take to cause a concussion and then what do we know about increased susceptibility. Really the question is, is my brain more vulnerable if I've had a concussion before? That's really the crux of what the issue is. All right. So let's go on. <clears throat> 
So let's talk about impact magnitudes. Most of this information comes from sports literature. Now, many patients with persistent concussion symptoms may have been in a car accident, and you get very upset when I talk about sports because you say, well, what about those that aren't athletes? Now, unfortunately, we can't put accelerometers on every single person in the world and follow them around for the rest of their life, just waiting for them to get a concussion. But in a sports setting, you have people that are going out and willingly bumping heads with each other. So you put some sensors on them and you try to see how many of them get concussions and then you get some decent data. So the one system that is frequently used in the sports arena is a, is a system called the HIT system. This is an acronym HIT, the Head Impact Telemetry System. And what it is is a series of six accelerometers placed inside a hockey helmet, football helmet, uh, or other type of helmet, and it measures acceleration from all different areas. And generally, it passes this information to a computer system on the sidelines. And anytime a hit happens where it causes the head to accelerate by 10 Gs or greater, it will log that as a hit. And over the series of multiple seasons, the researchers will collect this data. Anytime somebody gets hit and shows signs or symptoms of a concussion and they come off to the sidelines, the researchers will look back at the data to say how great or how strong was that particular hit. And then you can start to figure out kind of a range in where concussions tend to occur. So in millions of impacts that have happened, the research has found that concussion tends to occur with linear accelerations of between 70 and 120 Gs of acceleration. Rotational acceleration is anywhere between 5,500 rads per second and 9,500 rads per second squared. These are variables that are very hard to quantify when it comes to rotational acceleration, but from the linear standpoint, I have some comparisons so that things can start to make a lot of sense. Another point that I have here on my slide is that it doesn't matter where in the head you get hit. A lot of patients will say, well, I was hit right in the back here and that's where I feel everything. It doesn't matter because what happens is when you get hit in the back here, your brain moves all over the place and it's stretching and moving and shearing all over the place. So it doesn't matter where in the head you get hit. It doesn't really reflect the symptoms you experience. It doesn't reflect the length of time it takes you to recover. It literally has no bearing or effect on your recovery whatsoever. So don't focus on where you got hit doesn't matter at all. The highest predictive occurrence of concussion is anything over 96 Gs or anything above 5,500 rads per second squared. Now this is from a study in 2012 by Broglio. Now this is a large study. I have a bigger study coming up right uh, after this and the numbers are pretty much the same. We find the same type of numbers in Aussie football where they don't even wear helmets. And when we look at motor vehicle accidents, when you have a more severe brain injury, uh, something like a bleed or a subdural hematoma, this tends to happen at really, really high G-forces, so 316 Gs. So a G-force is obviously the force of gravity. It's an acceleration variable. Concussion is due to acceleration and deceleration of the brain. All right? So a subdural hematoma happens at 300 plus Gs. Concussion happens at 70 plus Gs, and the most uh, predictive occurrence is anything above 96 Gs, okay? So that kind of puts things in perspective. Now, let's look at high school football, right? Are all high school football impacts causing hits that are 96 Gs or higher? Well, no. 
In fact, the average magnitude of a high school impact in games is 24.8 Gs. In practice, it's 23 Gs. So it's a little bit lower in practice. I guess they're not trying to kill their teammates, but 20 Gs. To cause a concussion, it takes 70 to 120. The majority of impacts in football are below 25. All right, so the average is 25. College football, it's about the same. Across all sessions, 22 Gs. All right. Now, here's a large study. So look, this study looked at all these studies that have been done on this particular topic, and it combined them all to try and get a bigger number. And so this was based on 1.4, almost 1.5 million impacts over the course of several seasons. The number of concussions that happened in those 1.5 million impacts was 321. This means that concussion only occurs in football less than 0.02% of the time. So less than 1% of all hits that happen in a football game will be enough force to cause concussion. So that should put things in perspective. If you bumped your head on a countertop, would you say that that would be a really hard hit in a football game? Probably not, okay? So what they found was when they put all the data together, the mean peak acceleration needed from a linear standpoint to cause concussion was 98 Gs, which is similar to the previous study I showed, which is 96 Gs. Rotational acceleration, 5,700 rads per second squared. So that was about the same as what I reported before. Let's look at the distribution of impacts in high school football. 77% of all hits in high school football are below 30 Gs. So again, this is why not every hit on the football field is resulting in a concussion, only a very small portion of them. And for those that can see this slide right now, you can see there's this big kind of wave going down. And by the time we get to 70 Gs, we're talking like minimal on the bars in terms of number of, of uh, hits that actually happen at that threshold. So again, concussion happening less than 1% uh, of the time in uh, high school football. So, like I said, concussion, 70 to 120 Gs. Let's look at comparisons of this in terms of linear acceleration. What does that mean? What is 70 to 120 Gs? Well, a sneeze or a cough, ah choo, or <coughs> a cough, is three and a half Gs of linear acceleration to the head, all right? Very, very small. So, it takes, 70 to 120 to cause concussion, you're talking about a cough or a sneeze, and sometimes patients will get worried about this. Oh, I sneezed, and then all of a sudden I felt super dizzy, my symptoms came back, I think I gave myself another concussion. Mm, no. 3.5 Gs in a cough or a sneeze. So not enough, even close, to cause concussion injury. A header in soccer. Soccer players head the ball right? There's a big concern over heading in soccer. They're even making these stupid little headbands to protect people from concussions in soccer. The average header in soccer is 20 Gs, way below what you would see for concussion. So headers in soccer are not causing concussion. You can still get a concussion by getting hit with, that, with the ball in the head. That's usually if you're not paying attention. But an intentional header where you see the ball coming, you go up and you meet it and you head the ball, 20 Gs. Okay, well below. Olympic boxers. Okay, so they did a study where they had Olympic boxers full-on punch a dummy. 
and they would measure the acceleration of that. And they found that an all-out Olympic boxer heavyweight punching to the face with a jab was 58 Gs, not enough to surpass concussion threshold. Interesting. But the rotational acceleration that they were able to impart was 6,300 Gs, uh, or 6,300 rads per second squared, which is above the rotational concussion threshold. So that's why you, you generally never see somebody get knocked out with a jab. It's always a hook because the rotation can surpass the threshold for concussion, but the linear force uh, is, is very difficult to do so. So now for you car accident victims, a car accident in which the airbags deploy so I've said this before in previous episodes, the airbags in your vehicle are set to deploy at a change of velocity of about 50 kilometers an hour. So if you're driving 50 kilometers an hour, or if you're in the United States using miles per hour, 30 miles per hour, if you're driving down the street and you rear end a car, right, that change in velocity from 50 to zero will cause your airbags to deploy. This translates into about 60 G's through the seatbelt. Now, what happens to the head after that? We don't know. Does it hit the steering wheel? Does it fly over and hit the side window? Does it smash up against the headrest? We don't know. But we're talking about a car accident and where your airbags deploy, the G-forces to your chest is 60. All right. So to get to 70 to 120 Gs for a concussion, that is a tremendous amount of force. Concussions are not happening with this. It's just impossible. In order to cause concussion, your brain has to accelerate and decelerate enough to stretch the, the cells of the brain enough to cause stimulation. And that requires a fairly substantial amount of force. And I have a graphic here that I'm showing to people on the video, but basically your brain is made up of two layers. The outside layer of the brain is what's called the gray matter. The inside part of the, part of the brain is what's called the white matter. The white matter is where the axons are and the outer gray matter is well where the cell bodies are. Now, the reason why the interior part is white and the outside part is gray is because the interior part is lined with myelin, which is a fat. And that fat is white in color. So you get this distinct border between axons and cell bodies. So gray matter, white matter. Now, because one is lined with fat and the other one is not lined with fat, these two tissues actually are different densities. So when there's an acceleration force happening, it will accelerate and decelerate at different rates. And because it accelerates and decelerates at different rates, you get a stretching between those layers and you get a cross shearing between those layers. So this graphic, uh, is a video just showing how these two layers can cross each other when an impact occurs. And so for those watching on the video, you can see how this happens. And with that stretching, that is actually what a concussion does to the brain. Now, the question I always get, yeah, but aren't I more susceptible? All right, so let's take a look. Multiple concussions. So it's considered somewhat common knowledge that having a previous history of concussion lowers the threshold for subsequent injury and makes it more likely that you're going to get concussed in the future and make it so that your recovery takes much longer. Now, what is the actual scientific evidence showing this? It's actually pretty controversial. The study that is most widely quoted has some major flaws to it. So this study was 2003. There was 7,600 football players that were followed over two seasons. Almost a thousand of them, of these 7,600, 7, almost a thousand of them had had a previous history of concussion in the past five years. 
and the rest of them didn't. So they didn't have any concussions. Then they followed them over two seasons to see who would get another concussion. So they had 572 concussions over the next two years. 161 of those were people that had a previous history of concussion. 411 of those were people that did not have a previous history of concussion. It was actually their first concussion. So what they did next was some tricky statistics to prove a point which actually is very flawed. And what they calculated was that if you had a previous history of concussion, you were actually six times more likely to get a subsequent concussion. This study is quoted in a lot of papers. The problem with this study is that it doesn't take into account all the other variables. Like, who were the people that had previous concussions before they came into this study? Were these people that played a certain position that was actually just inherently more risky than the other positions? For example, if you look at football, you're more likely to get concussed as a running back than you are as an offensive lineman. So if you are a running back and you've had a concussion in the past and then the study starts and you continue to play running back, you're, you're at a statistically higher likelihood of having a concussion just because of the position that you play. Also, there's things like body size. Uh, there's uh, variables like aggressive style of play. If you're a running back who happens to be more of a, you know, juke and dodge type player or you're more of a put your head down and mole people over type player, you're going to put yourself at different levels of risk to that. So it doesn't take into account style of play. It doesn't take into account position of play. It doesn't take into account body size. It doesn't take into account all of these things. So just to look at this from a standpoint, there's too many confounding variables to suggest that the brain is actually more vulnerable. This could have to do with a variety of different reasons. So we know that those that have had a previous concussion are more at risk for having another one in the sports arena, but there's too many variables to try and actually make this a thing. So even the international consensus statement quoted this, having a past sports related concussion is a risk factor for having future sports related concussion. Having multiple past sports related concussions is associated with having more physical, cognitive, and emotional symptoms before participation in a sporting season. But why is this, right? All they alluded to was the data. If you look at a big epidemiological study and you don't take into account all the variables, you see that those that have had a previous concussion are more likely to get another one. But we have to take into account the variables because that is really important. So this study was interesting and kind of clears up this point. This was a study that was done on children. And this is children that were presenting to the emergency department with a concussion as the result of a fall. The reason they picked falls is because they could easily recreate the injury. They know from how high they fell, they know onto what surface they fell, they know whether or not they were wearing a helmet or not, and then they could calculate what the g-forces were from those injuries. So then they separated all of the different possible variables such as head size, body size, fall height, surface of the impact, helmet type. Falls were then reconstructed using a, uh, a model and also some, some algorithms to try and figure out what the g-forces were of these particular impacts. Then they separated the groups to see those with a previous concussion versus those with no previous concussion. Was the group with a previous concussion actually getting concussed with less force? Because that's what we're talking about. 
we're not talking about are you at more risk for just getting another concussion because of the position you play or whatever else. We're actually looking, is the brain more susceptible? Meaning that does a smaller impact actually start leading to concussions? And what they found was there was 222 concussions that were recreated. 58 had had a previous concussion. 164 did not. And what they found was no significant differences were found in any of the biomechanical variables between the group that had a history of concussion and the group that had no history of concussion. So for those that can see right here, this is how they recreated the models. They had this, this head on a thing and they would put it down on different surfaces. Um, one theory for why they didn't see an increase in the group that had had a previous concussion was because of the time that it elapsed since their previous injury to now. So we know that, or at least there's a lot of speculation that during that initial injury phase, during that energy drop phase that happens right after a concussion, the brain may be more susceptible during that period of time. And we've shown this in animal models where they get more serious injuries if you get a second concussion during that time, and they can add up to create more significant or longer term recoveries and potentially even fatal outcomes. This is called second impact syndrome. But beyond that initial period of time, there's actually no shown increased susceptibility. And that's what we're talking about. In the PCS realm, people that have had a previous concussion months to years ago, thinking that they're still vulnerable. So when they looked at this, they said, in summary, the impact events presented in this research would support the animal and tissue models that describe no vulnerability to incurring a concussion from an impact when the period between impacts is large. So let's take a look at how spaced out things need to be. Most of the studies comes from animals because you can't necessarily just tell humans to line up and we're going to give you concussions after concussions and we're going to see what happens. That's not how we can do it. But with animals, we can kind of do that. So the study that I'm showing on my screen right now is a study looking at the ATP levels in animals. So after concussion, your ATP levels drop. This is the energy molecule in your brain. So we have here on the far left, we have a sham group that didn't have a concussion. Then you can you can see here on the slide that one minute after injury, we have a drop in ATP. 10 minutes after injury, even more so. 30 minutes after injury, even more so. So we're, our energy is declining right after injury. At two hours, there's a little star here, which means we hit a significant difference. So at two hours after injury, we are now significantly lower energy than uh, a sham group with no injury. At six hours, we hit the peak low, and then we start to gradually build up those energy stores back up. Basically, by five days in an animal model, the brain has recovered from that energy deficit. Now, I see some questions coming in, and I will get to them after I'm done this, because this might answer them. So five days, we hit back up to normal. That's in an animal. Other studies have have looked at, okay, what happens if we're going to hit this animal again at a different time point from the uh, injury? So this particular study here, they had a group of control animals that they didn't give a concussion to. Then they had a group that they gave one concussion to. Then they had a group that they gave a severe brain injury to. So a concussion is called a mild traumatic brain injury. So that is, you know, there's no observable damage on MRI. The brain remains intact. There's, you know, it's a mild injury. Severe brain injury, you have findings on MRI. Uh, you may have prolonged loss of consciousness. The person may be in a coma. Uh, there may be skull fractures, hemorrhaging. Also, this is a severe brain injury, okay? Now, in a concussion, you have about a 20% reduction 
in your ATP. In a severe brain injury, you have about a 50% reduction in your ATP. So obviously a lot worse, right? And if your energy levels get too low, the cells of your brain actually start to die off and they go through a process called apoptosis. They kill themselves off and that's it. And if that happens at too large of a scale, you can get increased swelling uh, and, and, uh, and you could pass away. So this study looked at what if we were to hit these animals that had a concussion and what if we were to give them another concussion at different time points in their recovery? Now remember what I said about the animal model. It takes five days for the animal to come out of that energy deficit. So if they waited a full five days to give that animal a second concussion, they would give them that second concussion and they showed no difference from the group that had not had a previous concussion. So that means if you get a concussion and you fully recover, from an energy standpoint and you get another concussion there's no difference it's just another concussion but if those animals were given a second concussion at day three of their recovery so in that very low point of energy right in the middle of their recovery then boom another concussion they were no different than a severe brain injury and in fact 10 percent of the animals in the group that had two concussions only spaced out by three days died as a result of their injury. So this is when two concussions back to back can be serious. But as you can see, if they had recovered in that five day span, they were not at risk for any increased um, you know, severity of their concussion. Another study that I'm showing right now is they actually looked at, okay, what if we hit them at day one, day two, day three, day four, and day five? And they actually found that if you hit them right on day one, it's not as bad because their energy hasn't dropped significantly yet. And then if you hit them on day two, it's even worse. If you hit them on day three, that's the worst. If you hit them again on day four, they've actually, they're actually not as bad because their energy levels have started coming back up again. And if you hit them on day five, there's no difference than if you were just to not just hit them one time. All right. So that's what they say. So here's another, here's a quote from a study. Data from the current study provides additional evidence and demonstrates that a second injury during the peak impairment of glucose uptake resulted in the greatest impairment of motor function and histological measures of damage. A second injury during the period of recovery, five days, resulted in a somewhat worsened outcome, although without any impairment of motor function. A second injury during the period of the fully recovered glucose uptake, which is 15 days after the first injury, showed no significant difference from a single concussion. Another study was done on animals. And they, uh, what they did is they had three separate groups of animals, actually four separate groups of animals. Group one was a sham group, so they never had any injuries whatsoever. Group two got five concussions, but they were spaced out uh, a month apart. So you get a concussion, then a month later you'd get another concussion, then a month later you'd get another concussion, and a month later you get another concussion. So they got five concussions, but they were spaced out by a month. The next group got five concussions, but they were spaced out by a week. The next group got five concussions, but they were just every single day for five days. Okay. So the only difference, all the groups got five concussions, except for the sham group. The only difference was how much spacing they put in between each of those injuries. Okay. What they found was one month after the final injury, they tested them on water mazes and all sorts of cognitive measures. And what they found was the group that had a concussion every single day for five days was significantly impaired. The group that had a concussion every week for five weeks showed a little bit of differences, but it wasn't significant. And the group that had a concussion every month for five months was no different 
than a group that had never had a concussion in the past. So again, it may not be the number of concussions you've had, but the spacing of those concussions. So the question I have on my slide here is, how close is too close for a human? Well, in human studies, like I said, we can't voluntarily knock them around and see how many concussions they get and when they get them and all this stuff. But what we can do is we can watch those after they've had a concussion. So one of the studies that was done, one of the largest studies that was done in this, there's a technology that can look at the levels of ATP in your brain. It doesn't really look at the levels of ATP, it looks at a correlate of the levels of ATP, a thing called NAA, N-acetylaspartate. But anyway, it gives us a, a, an indication of the energy level inside the brain. So this particular study looked at uh, athletes after getting a concussion. So here we have three days after injury, we have a significant drop in energy. 15 days after injury, we still have a significant deficit. 22 days after injury, we still have a significant deficit in humans. But then at day 30, that deficit has gone. So in an animal, it takes five days for that energy level to come back up. In a human, it's looking like it's three to four weeks, somewhere in that period. Some studies have actually even shown as high as six weeks, uh, but most of the studies will show between three and four weeks for that energy to get back up. Now, if we consider that low energy state to be our susceptible period, that means that after three or four weeks, we should have no more increased susceptibility um, for another concussion. So here's the summary. The increased risk of subsequent concussions does not appear to be due to increased susceptibility of the brain. Okay? So, there are likely other factors that go into this idea that having a previous concussion makes you more at risk for having another one. Right? Because if you just look at straight up data and you don't look at all the variables that go into anyone else's life, like, you know, playing position, strength, size, aggressiveness, yada, yada, uh, risk-taking behavior, whatever, it's going to potentially appear like there's an association. But if you were to take all those variables into consideration, at least we know, or at least what it seems like from this point and on, is that if you had a previous concussion, unless it's right in the acute stages of that injury, the brain is no more vulnerable to having another concussion. So, we still need to hit somewhat of a threshold in order to cause the brain to stretch. So a lot of times people will go over a speed bump or bump their head on a countertop or do something very minimal, right? This is not enough to create 70 to 120 Gs, right? This is not 100 Gs. This is maybe not even a half a G, right? Not enough to cause any damage to the brain, right? It's the timing that matters, not necessarily the fact that you've had a concussion. So then the question comes, but you don't know how I feel. I know how I feel. And when I go over a speed bump or when I bump my head or when somebody knocks me on the street or whatever like that, why do I still feel my concussion symptoms? Why do my concussion symptoms come back when that happens? Well, the big thing you have to understand is that concussion symptoms are not specific to concussion. And what I mean by that is that the symptoms of concussion, headaches, dizziness, nauseousness, fogginess, uh, trouble concentrating, all of these symptoms can be caused by a number of different conditions. One of them is anxiety. So if you are afraid 
that you've, you've had a concussion, you're still having symptoms, you're in a car and all of a sudden you hit a little bump and you start going, oh my God, did I just give myself another concussion? Did I just give myself another concussion? That alone, as that thought spins inside your head, is going to create anxiety, confusion, nauseousness. Maybe you're going to start to feel a little bit sick and you start, to, oh my God, I have to get out of this car. And oh, what if I just did that again? And then somebody asks you a question, but you're not even focusing on their question. And then you're like, oh my God, I'm confused now. I'm not able to. So it's just a misattribute, a misattribution of the symptoms that you're experiencing because the, the bump physiologically could not have damaged your brain. But yet, because you don't know that yet, as soon as it happens, you start freaking out. The freak out and panic alone can bring on all the symptoms of concussion. Okay, so that's one area of it. The other one is neck injury or neck dysfunction. Concussion causes 70 to 120 Gs to the brain to cause a concussion injury. To injure your neck, it only takes four and a half Gs. So every time you had a concussion, every time you have a concussion, like that, you're gonna accelerate your head and neck. Your neck only takes four and a half Gs. Your neck is going to be injured every single time that you have a concussion. If it takes only four and a half Gs to injure your neck, a good sneeze can tighten up your neck again, right? A speed bump can jam up your neck again. A bout of anxiety, a lot of people feel tension in their neck, right? So if you are scared about what just happened or boom, you jar your neck and that starts to create a bit of a headache, your neck can make you feel dizzy. And then all of a sudden, you start having all of these same types of symptoms, okay? So this is what's called a nocebo effect. Nocebo effect is a very widely known phenomenon, okay? It's very heavily studied. The idea behind nocebo is the same as a placebo. So what is a placebo? Well, a placebo is a, a fake medication that's given to a group to try and see if the results of the actual medication that they're trying to study are legit. So let's say I'm studying a medication for blood pressure. All right, I use this example all the time. Let's say I'm studying blood pressure. I'm gonna bring in a group that has high blood pressure and I'm gonna separate them randomly into different groups so they don't know what group they're in. And I'm, I have to give everyone a medication because I can't just leave this group without giving them a medication because they'll know that they didn't have any treatment. So you wouldn't expect to see any changes in them. But if I just left them there and didn't give them anything, and I gave this group medication, right? So then this group's getting the medication, and all of a sudden they start to get better. Their blood pressure goes down. I can, I can have the false sense that it's because the medication is working. But that's not really in reality, because if you actually separate it and do what's called a placebo-controlled trial, you give this group a placebo and then you give this group the actual medication, people in the placebo group will actually start to show decreased blood pressure, right? The mind is very powerful. So at the same token, right, you're seeing the group in the placebo group that hasn't even been given the actual medication, they're starting to have a drop in blood pressure because they believe that they're in the other group, even though they're not, they actually start having some of the side effects of that medication. So because when you're doing this, you're gonna give them a list of all the potential side effects. Now, if the side effects include bloating, diarrhea, gas, whatever it may be, you know, headaches, the group, just as many people in these clinical trials, just as many people in the placebo group drop out of the trial due to unwanted side effects. So that is the nocebo effect. So if you believe that there's some negative connotation to something, you will start to experience that. And this is what's called the nocebo effect, right? Somebody over here says, I call BS. 
Have you ever had PCS? No, I have not, but I know the science, right? People get very triggered when you start talking about this because they don't want to believe that there's any type of nocebo effect here, but it's been very, very heavily studied. And the fact that I'm sharing with this with you should actually be helpful for you. I'm not trying to trigger you. I'm trying to get you to have a different lens, to look at things from a different lens, from a scientific perspective, and not be afraid all the time because these little bumps are not causing concussion. The science does not support that idea. Another reason why you could be having increased symptoms after minor bumps is a concept called microglial priming. After you have a concussion, you have inflammation that happens inside the brain. These little cells inside your brain called microglia are basically the organisms that go around and clean up debris and things like that. And they send out these markers. These markers bring more inflammation to an area to try and kind of help out. All right. So when the microglia um, starts getting activated, it's very hard to turn them off. So what happens is they're kind of on high alert. And if they're on high alert, then even small impacts might kind of trigger them again to start going out and looking, which could cause a bit of an inflammatory reaction. So this is why it's very important to control for inflammation uh, when a concussion or when you're recovering from a concussion, because that may have something to do with it. That's kind of a newer concept, not a ton of research on it, but it is another theory as to why that happens. So in my opinion, what is likely going on is at lower lower impact velocity. So the things like the speed bumps, the, you know, bumping your head on a countertop or, you know, a little bit of jarring or a sneeze or a cough or anything like that. Even though the symptoms of concussion may come back, it does not mean you've injured your brain because a lot of things can cause those same symptoms like anxiety, PTSD, um, uh, neck dysfunction, microglial priming, all that type of stuff. So at the very low thresholds, there's no subsequent injury to to concussion. As you start getting up higher and higher forces, maybe you have enough threshold. So I'm not saying you're immune to getting another concussion, right? If you're in another car accident or have another serious blow, of course you can get another concussion. I'm talking about all the little bumps, the turbulence on the airplane. Unless every other person on the airplane also got a concussion at the exact same time, it's very unlikely that that turbulence got a concussion, okay? Or, or caused a concussion. Uh, Okay, so I'm going to do a little bit of Q&A because I see some people do have some questions. Um, I'm not going to, I'm going to shut this video down for those of you on YouTube, but you can ask questions below. You can comment on the video. Um, tell me what you think. You can tell me that I'm full of crap. Uh, I don't care. I follow the research. And so that's me. Thank you for listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.